Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. But tonight, we are delighted to present Andrew Porter, author of In Between Days. Andrew's short story collection, The Theory of Light and Matter, was a Skylight Books staff pick and a big hit with our customers. He's a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop and has received a Pushcart Prize and a Missioner Copernicus Fellowship. He's currently teaching at Trinity University in San Antonio, and he's traveled all the way to Los Angeles tonight to share with us his debut novel, which we're really excited about, In Between Days. Please help me welcome Andrew Porter. Thank you, and thank you all for coming out tonight. It's great to see a lot of familiar faces. Um, this is technically the last um, stop on my book tour, so I can't think of a better place to end than Los Angeles, and also um, at Skylight Books, who have been very kind to my books and me. Um, so anyway, I'm going to read. Um, I've been reading from the first chapter of my novel pretty much because it's easiest to read from, um, but tonight I thought I'd read the last chapter. Um, there's some spoilers I should, I should warn you about. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to read the last. <laughs> um, I always wanted to do that. Um, no, I'm actually, I'm going to read um, the first chapter. Um, and one of the reasons I'm reading the first chapter is just because um, it doesn't require any explanation, um, or if it does, and I'm in trouble. Um, I, uh, I guess that's all you need to know. The novel takes place in Houston. It's about a family um, going through a crisis, and this novel kind of introduces part of that crisis, or this chapter introduces part of that crisis. Um, so I'll just start. Since his divorce, Elson has fallen into the habit of stopping by the Brunswick Hotel for a quick drink after work. He likes the Brunswick Hotel because it's one of the newest hotels in the city and because he knows that no one he knows will ever find him here. 
He likes the anonymity of it, of drinking here alone in the third floor bar area, of sitting here at the window staring out across the street at the futuristic office buildings, at their slick glass surfaces, knowing that behind these glass surfaces, men and women in finely pressed suits are probably packing up their bags and briefcases, making plans for dinner or drinks. He likes to imagine these people leaving, likes to watch them as they walk out the door and get in their cars. There's something strangely soothing about it all, about this daily routine of watching the city empty out, of watching it grow quiet and dark. Tonight, the barroom is empty, save for a few out-of-town businessmen drinking alone. And outside the window, the city is quiet, a light rain coming down now, a cold winter rain, which is somewhat atypical for Houston this time of year. In an hour from now, he will be meeting Lorna Estrada, the woman he has been sleeping with for the past six months, the woman he met just after his wife left him at a barbecue at his friend Dave Milhauser's house. Lorna is 27 years old and many years his junior, and yet surprisingly mature for her age. He sometimes speculates that this is because of her Filipino upbringing, because of the strictness of her parents, or other times because of the fact that she came to the state so young that she got a first-hand glimpse of how cruel the world could be to a non-English speaking adult, especially in a city like Houston. The first and only child in her family to ever receive a degree in anything, Lorna works as a curator at the Museum of Fine Arts and shares with Elson a strange and fervent interest in minimalist architecture. That Elson is himself an architect was perhaps part of the initial allure. The fact that they could talk with ease about the work of Claudio Silverstrin or Vincent van Doysen or Sudo de Moro. But now Elson wonders, what has that allure become? A few empty hours at the end of the day, a couple of drinks, maybe a movie, mostly sex, and even that has become routine. In the early days of their relationship, if that is in fact what this is, they would go to the houses of Lorna's friends. They would sit around drunkenly discussing the state of the world or art, just as he'd done back in college. And though most of these people were younger than him, some of them young enough to be his own children, he still enjoyed it. He liked to watch the flicker of the candles, the shadows playing along the walls. He liked to listen to the conversations from a guarded distance with a vague sense of amusement or perhaps jealousy. How long had it been, after all, since he'd shared these types of convictions himself? Later, he had even started smoking again, joining a small group of them as they went out to the yard to have a cigarette after dinner. And as he stood there beneath the lamplight on the porch or in the shadows of the garden, he would look over at Lorna and smile, and she would always smile back. But what has happened since then? He often wonders whether he has maybe upset her or embarrassed her in some way, or if it is simply the fact that he, Elson, is so indicative of everything that she and her friends despise. It has been a month since they've done anything but meet at Elson's apartment after work. And even when Elson has inquired about her friends, Lorna has been evasive. They're always too busy, she tells him, working on their projects or organizing some event or protesting some local politician. One night earlier that week, he had stopped by her apartment after work to drop off a sweater she had left at his place. He had not told her he was coming, but he had expected she'd be happy to see him. He had knocked on her door several times, and when no one had answered, he had stood there for a long time and listened. Through the clear glass window, he could hear voices coming from the other side of the apartment, laughing. 
He stood there for a while longer, listening, and then knocked again. After a while, the voices grew quiet and a light went off in the kitchen. He wondered what to do, whether to stand there and wait, humiliate them all when they eventually came out, or whether it would be better just to leave. Finally, he had decided to drop the sweater off in the doorway and leave. The following night, when Lorna came over to his place, she denied ever hearing him knock. She claimed that they were planning a rally about something or other and that they were probably too busy, too engrossed in their project to hear him. Elson had shaken his head and smiled, whatever he'd said, borrowing an expression from Lorna herself, an expression that she often used when she wanted to dismiss him. And then he'd stood up and walked into the kitchen for a beer. Now, sitting in the dim-lit glow of the Brunswick Hotel bar, Elson finds himself wondering whether he should have handled it differently, or whether it would have even mattered. He looks over toward the bartender and motions at his glass. A moment later, the bartender walks over and fills it. He's a young man, this bartender, and fit. He reminds him of some of the boys that his son Richard used to bring over to the house. Looks like it's going to break, the bartender says, nodding toward the window. What? The storm, he says, looks like it's going to be a bad one. Elson stares out the window and realizes that the sky is darkened, the clouds from the east moving in over the city like a fog. Good, he says. Huh? I'm glad. You looking for a storm? He could say that. The bartender stares at him quizzically, then smiles. I've seen you here before, haven't I, last Tuesday? Maybe, Elson says. I come here a lot. The bartender nods. You know, I actually just started here last week, just moved down here from Austin. Elson nods again. He can tell that this bartender is looking for a conversation, maybe even wanting to ask him something personal. So he quickly turns away, staring at the wall on the far end of the bar until the bartender finally leaves. When he comes back a few minutes later, Elson pulls out his wallet. How much do I owe you, he asks. Later, as he stands outside the front lobby of the Brunswick Hotel, waiting for his car, Elson lights a cigarette and watches the sky grow dark, the palm trees in the distance swaying hypnotically in the wind. He wonders why he acted the way he had at the bar and whether or not he has ruined the Brunswick Hotel forever. He looks across the street and thinks of Lorna and realizes that the promise of the night has suddenly vanished. He wants to go home and sleep it off. The valets are putting on rain parkas with the hotel logo printed on the back, and when his car comes up the ramp, they all swarm in around him, holding out their arms, swinging an umbrella above his head. He tips them generously and takes off, realizing it might be a long time before he returns here again. Outside the edge of downtown Houston, he stops at a light and checks his messages. He's hoping for a call from Lorna, hoping for a last-minute cancellation or maybe a change of plans, but instead what he sees is a long list of messages from his ex-wife, Cadence, each one spaced out by a couple of minutes, most of them left in the last half hour. He pulls over on the side of the road and calls her up, feeling a sense of uneasiness, a sense of dread. The last time they spoke, almost a month before, he had vowed never to call her again directly, to handle all of their future correspondences through email or perhaps a third party. The last time they spoke, she had called him a monster, a term that had stung him so deeply that it had taken him several days to shake it off. He expects that Cadence will want to pick up where she left off the last time they spoke, but when she answers the phone, her voice is surprisingly calm. What's the emergency, he says. What do you mean? 
Well, you called me, let's see, seven times. Oh, no emergency. You just wanted to talk? No, I wanted to tell you something. Outside the window, the rain is coming down hard now, obscuring his view of everything. He turns off the windshield wipers and waits for her to finish. I want to tell you that Chloe is going to be coming home tonight, and she's going to be staying with me for a while. What do you mean? I mean simply that. Doesn't she have classes? Well, no, not at the moment. She's been asked to take a leave. A leave from school? Yes. Elson can feel his pulse quickening. What are you talking about? Just what I said. She's been asked to take a leave for the rest of the semester. She's been expelled? Well, no, not exactly. It's more complicated than that. Elson looks out the window and feels his body loosening, his mind swimming with possibilities. What I'm saying is it hasn't come to that yet. They're still in deliberations. Who? The provost, the president, the dean of student life, most of the student judiciary council. She pauses. As I said, we're hoping it doesn't come to that. Jesus, what did she do? Well, Kane says, but doesn't finish. Look, Elson, this is something she wants to talk to you about herself. Elson sits there for a moment, silent. I told her I wouldn't tell you. You're keeping secrets from me now? No, it's not like that. How long have you known? Cadence is quiet for a moment. I don't know, a couple weeks, I guess. A couple weeks? Look, Elson, I'm not going to talk to you this way, okay? I'm not looking for a fight. I just wanted to tell you that she's coming home tonight and that she's agreed to meet with you tomorrow if you're willing. She can explain the whole thing to you then. Elson considers this. Who's picking her up? Richard, I'll get her. No, Elson, that's not part of the agreement. Look, I told her, I promised her, I wouldn't even tell you until tomorrow. Elson grips the edge of the dashboard with his left hand, squeezing it until his knuckles turn white. So you're telling me that I can't even pick up my own daughter from the airport? Is that what you're telling me? That's what I'm telling you. Cadence, I'm hanging up now, Elson. And before he can get out another word, the line goes dead. He looks at the phone, then redials her number, but all he gets is Cadence's voicemail. He considers leaving her a message, but decides instead to just hang up. He drops the phone on the floor and then feels his stomach drop. He wonders where his daughter is now, whether she's high above the earth in an airplane cabin circling the tiny suburbs of East Texas, or whether she's still back at the airport in Boston, waiting for her plane. He tries to picture his daughter's face, tries to remember the last time they spoke, but the memory is vague. Instead, what he sees is his daughter as a child, as a young girl, standing in the doorway of his study, asking him what he's working on, then coming over and sitting on his lap, watching him as he works on his latest blueprint, studying his hand as he makes tiny markings on the page, measuring things out with a ruler and pen. She smells like bubble bath, her hair stole wet, her skin moist, and as he lights up a cigarette and turns to her, she makes a face, scrunches her nose as she always does. I thought you were going to quit, she says. You promised. And he assures her that he will, that once his project is over, once he's finished, he will definitely quit, and then the memory is gone, and Elson is reaching into his pocket for a freshly opened pack. A moment later, as he's driving past the gay bars in Montrose, he, he dials up Lorna's number, his fingers twitching so badly now that he can barely hold the phone. When she answers, her voice is calm, guarded. She tells him that she's talking to someone on the other line. I'm coming to see you, he says. I'm not ready, she says. I, I haven't even showered. 
I need to see you right now, he says. Something's happened. Lorna is silent. Then she says, what's happened? But he doesn't answer. He realizes only now how upset he is, how he doesn't even have words to explain it. I'll tell you when I come, he says finally. Give me 20 minutes. Okay, he says, and then he drops the phone on the seat. Outside his window, the storm is finally breaking. The heavy clouds from the east rising up over the city, combining with other clouds to form a giant mass. He pulls over on the side of the street and parks. The rain is coming down quickly now, pounding the car, and in the distance he can see brilliant displays of lightning splintering along the horizon. He looks out the window to his left and notices a small row of brown stucco houses, all old and somewhat disheveled, and realizes then, with something like panic, with something like fear, that he doesn't actually know where he is, that he must have made a wrong turn somewhere, that somehow, in the city where he's grown up, the city where he's lived all his life, he is lost. That's it. Thank you. So um, I'm happy to take questions if people have any. I know I know a bunch of the people here, so <laughs> you may not have questions for me. Um, but if there are any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Yeah. Um, why did you decide to write mostly present That's a great question. Um, partly just, I mean, I started this novel by writing this first chapter, and at that point, I thought it was really probably going to be a short story, and. I didn't think about tense a lot then, except that I just, for whatever reason, intuitively sensed that it should be in the present tense. And then once I made that decision, there was kind of no going back um, once, the, once it turned to, into a larger story. But I think also it adds, the present tense I always feel like adds a kind of immediacy to any story, you know, cause, and it adds a kind of tension because you feel like anything can happen because it's happening now. And um, that works with this story because there's a lot of, potential problems. <laughs> um, so that's, that's why. Any other questions? I'm happy to talk about anything. <laughs> yeah. Can you just kind of talk about how maybe the first idea that you talking about this could have been a short story evolved into something like a novel? Like, how did you know, when did you know you were writing a novel? And how, did all, how did it come to be? Yeah, it happened fairly early on. Um, so I wrote this first section and thinking this could be like this first section of a story or something. Um, that's my daughter. <laughs> As I, she tends to heckle me at reading. So, um, uh, and, and so, you know, I finished this first section and what was strange is usually, you know, I, I would then think what's going to happen next with this guy. Um, and instead, I found myself interested in some of the other characters referenced in the section. And for some reason, I was interested in the son who's only referenced really briefly and I thought huh, I wonder what the story behind his son is and so I decided to just as a kind of experiment to explore the son's character a little bit and so I wrote a section from the son's perspective and then I found after that that I wanted to um, go into his daughter's perspective so I wrote a section from her perspective and then than his wife. And so before I knew it, I was writing from the perspectives of all four characters in this family. And I still wasn't quite sure what this was, um, if it was just sort of a series of experiments or, or something bigger. 
but after I'd done a number of sections from all other perspectives, and I was about 60 pages in, I thought this is getting too long to be a short story. <laughs> so that's about when I, I realized. And and what was interesting is as I wrote more about these characters, more questions came up for me, which usually with a short story, after a certain point, I feel it kind of you know, narrowing in a bit. And with, with this piece, I felt like the questions got bigger and bigger, and the characters became more mysterious to me the more I wrote about them. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how it evolved. Do your other characters uh, speak in the first person also? This is third person. This is third person, Dad. <laughs> but I appreciate the question. <laughs> but no, this this novel was um, is all you know third person from all of the perspective of, of all of these characters. Um, but uh, my first book, which is a collection of short stories, was you know it was ten stories all in the first person, and so. Um, one of the questions I got a lot when I read from that book is, why are all the stories in this book in the first person? And I kept getting this over and over again, and I began to sense after a while that the kind of like, you know, the, the um, hidden message of this question was, you know, can you write in the third person? Um, and so I sort of took that as a challenge <laughs> to show I could write in the third person. So that's, that's part of what I did. Yeah. Well, and as somebody who has written so many different first-person voices. Did you feel that as you sh shifted points of view in this book, that your third-person narrator's language shifted, or did you keep that sort of anonymous narrator's voice consistent throughout? That the, that the, the language. The language itself? Like each character had a, their own sort of cluster of, of, of language, or did you feel like the narrator held sort of all the parts? No, yeah, I, I felt like, I mean, I was doing it was four sort of close third persons perspectives, so they were very much inside the head of each character when I was in their perspective. And so when I had the, the son and daughter kind of, one's in college, or was in college, um, and the other is sort of recently graduated from college, so they're younger characters, and so, yeah, their vocabulary, the words that they use in terms of their internal thoughts, felt younger, and, you know, the parents, of course, had a different type of language. So, yeah, I felt like with each one it felt pretty distinct. Yeah. I know you, so I know this is, you know, you mostly have written short stories, and this became something bigger. How was that for you, writing your first book and your first short story? So yeah, I mean, it was really, really different. Um, you know, it, in some ways it was really fun because I had never had the chance to sort of explore characters as deeply as I could in the longer form. Um, but it was also very scary to me because I'd never, like I said, I'd never really written a lot in the third person that was new. I'd certainly never written a story from multiple perspectives. And, you know, for much of this novel, I felt like I didn't know if I knew, you know, knew it were, where it was going to lead or if I knew what I was doing, to be honest. <laughs> um, and I kind of just went forward with blind faith, and that's a scary thing to do with something so long. Um, and so that, that was a very different type of experience. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, it was kind of very much like I write stories. I mean, I let the characters kind of lead the way, and I just sort of followed their decisions, and, you know, I just, I knew that it was going to go for a longer amount of time, but, you know, I took the pretty similar approach. Yeah. Uh, did you 
finishes where you write this while your wife was pregnant and only had a kid? <laughs> How did that change the writing or the Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because, you know, as you probably got a sense from this chapter, like, one of the central mysteries of this novel is um, why was this uh, the father's daughter, this the daughter of this family, expelled from college, and and you know she finds herself in more and more trouble as the novel goes on. Um, and I wrote all of this before I was a parent and before I knew what it felt like to be a parent and before I had a daughter myself. And I don't know um, if I had written this when I had a daughter how different that would be or whether I would have been able to write certain scenes in the story um, because it might have made me nervous <laughs> or scared. Um, so no, I wrote all of this before she was born. My wife was pregnant as I was doing kind of the final revisions, but I had already had like a full draft of it at that point. And then the day I handed in my final draft to my editor, the next day my wife went into labor with our daughter, so it seemed, I think I sensed that that was going to happen. I was like, I better get this done because I'm not going to have time to do it pretty soon. So. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah. Uh, did you have any input on the cover art? I did. Um, this was actually not the original cover for the, the novel. It was, um, the, co the original cover was really nice. Um, it was in it was designed by a great cover designer who did like The Life of Pi, that book, and he did some Wolf Hall and a few other books. And I was very flattered that he had designed this cover, and, but it wasn't, tonally it wasn't right for the book. It had like a big bottle of Corona beer was like the central image. And I mean, <laughs> it didn't, it, this was a, you know, a family novel and I didn't, I didn't really, it, it had a sort of spring break vibe to it. Um, and, uh, and I and so I felt when I saw it, my first reaction, not, I didn't even know who the designer was at that point, and I just was like, this doesn't feel like my novel, and I didn't feel like readers buying this book would get the story they were expecting to get. So I very nervously asked if we could try something else, um, and they were very kind and agreed to to you know go back to the drawing board. And the same day they came back with this cover, which is a photograph. Um, I, I'm, I can't remember the name of the photographer, but it's actually a swimming pool in Austin, Texas. The novel takes place in Houston, but it has sort of similar foliage, and it it looks like a pool that would be in Houston. And so um, it just seemed to set a better tone for what this book was. Um, and so ultimately, I you know I was happy with with that. But um, you don't. I mean, a lot of times you don't get any input at all as an author. It's, um, so I was. I was lucky that they were willing to do that. Yeah. I don't. That's a good question. Sometimes they'll change it. I mean, yeah, I, they haven't talked to me about that yet. I, my assumption is they'll keep it for the paperback because I think they were pretty happy with it. But um, who knows? It may be Corona beer. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> um, Right. Were there ever times you wondered about changing first? To, back to first? Yeah, I mean, it always seemed, I always found when I'd finish a chapter that I was eager to get to another character's perspective. And so in that way, I, w I didn't doubt it as much because I felt like if I feel compelled to learn more about another one of the other characters' story, then hopefully the reader might be interested too. So it began to feel like the right perspective. 
Um, and also, I mean, when I sort of attempted novels in the past, they'd always been first-person novels. And one of the challenges that I ran into was that I found myself um, unable to kind of tell a larger story, you know, because it was in the first person. And that's just, I think, a personal um, difficulty of mine. But um, when I would find myself kind of um, struggling to do that, um, you know, I, I would abandon the novel. <laughs> and so part of the reason I did this is it kind of forced me to tell a big story. I mean, if you have four perspectives, it forces the story to be big. So that's one. Anything else? Well, thank you all for coming out. Um, and uh, I'm happy to sign books if, if anyone would like me to. And um, stay dry. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.